Today I'm going to go over different types of memory. Um, one of the most important ones being everyday memory and memory errors. So our journey so far will start with the autobiographical memory, which is what has happened in my life. This is a multidimensional nature of autobiographical memory, and this is a memory over a lifespan. Uh, next would be memory for exceptional events. This would be memory and emotion. Uh, these are considered flashbulb memories. Um, I'll go over Brown and uh, Kulik propose uh, the term flashbulb memory. Uh, flashbulb memories are not like photographs at all. Um, this would be the method of repeated recall. Um, these are flashbulb memories that are different from other memories. Um, next would be the constructive nature of memories. Um, the source be uh, the source of being would be monitoring errors. Uh, the illusionary uh, truth effect. Um, how real world knowledge affects memory. Then a. Uh, Touchdown on Barlett's War of the Ghost experiment, uh, making inferences. Um, the demonstration will be reading sentences, schemas, and scripts. The next demonstration would be um, the memorization of a list of false recall and recognition. Um, this would kind of sum up what it would be to have exceptional memory. Uh, the next topic would be the misinformation effect. Uh, the method is presenting misleading uh, post-event information. Next would be creating memories for events in people's lives, uh, creating childhood memories, uh, legal implications for false memory research. Uh, the next topic would be why do people make errors in eyewitness testimonies? Um, errors of eyewitness identification, errors associated with perception and attention, uh, misidentifications due to familiarity, um, errors due to suggestion, um, and what is being done to improve eyewitness testimony. Um, there's a lineup procedure. There's interviewing techniques. And there is eliciting false confessions. Last would be uh, something to consider. Uh, music and odor elicited autobiographical memories. Alright, so autobiographical memory. This is a memory for specific experiences from our life. Which can include both episodic and semantic components. For example, an autobiographical memory of a childhood birthday party might include images of the cake, people at the party, and the games being played. It might also include knowledge about when the party occurred, uh, where your family was living at the time, and your knowledge about what usually happens at uh, birthday parties, which would be semantic memory. Right, two important characteristics of 
autobiographical memories are, one, they are multidimensional, and two, we remember some events in our lives better than other others. Okay. Uh, the multidimensional nature of autobiographical memory, uh, you have your own photos, uh, lab photos, and uh, it may give you different perspectives on, um, like that would be a great example, would be, uh, think about a memorable moment in your life, uh, an event involving other people. Or a solitary memorable experience. Whatever experience you remember, it is pretty certain that there are many components to your memory. Visual, uh, what you can see when you transport yourself back in time. Auditory, uh, what people are saying or other sounds in the environment. And perhaps smells, tastes, and tactile perceptions as well. But memories extend beyond... uh, Vision, hearing, touch, taste, and smell. They also have spatial components because events usually take place in a three-dimensional environment. And perhaps most important of all, memories often involve thoughts and emotions, both positive and negative. Mm. There's also memory over a lifetime. Uh, there's the reminiscence bump, the enhanced memory uh, for adolescents and young adults found in people over 40 is called the reminiscence bump. There's the self-image hypothesis, which proposes that memory is enhanced for events that occur as a person's self-image or life ad- identity is being formed. Uh, This idea is based on the results of an experiment in which participants with an average age of 54 create I am statements such as I am a mother, I am a psychologist, uh, that they felt that as a person. So that helps with the, uh, you can get a graph on that and kind of see how that plays out in terms of memorization. It's easier to associate yourself with the memory. Uh, the cultural life script hypothesis is this distinguishes between a person's life story, uh, which is all the events that have occurred in a person's life and a cultural life script, which is the culturally expected events that occur at a particular time, uh, in a lifespan. For example, when, uh, Dorothan, uh, Burstyn and David Rubin in 2004, Asked people to list the important events in a typical person's life. It usually occurred uh, at the uh, falling in love at 16, college at 22 years old, marriage at 27, and having uh, children at 28. There's also a youth bias. This is the tendency uh, for the most notable public events in a person's life to be perceived to occur. When the person is young. Um, memory and emotion. So this is uh, the memory for exceptional events. Uh, when we look at what is happening physiological, one structure stands out. It is the amygdala structure. The amygdala is important because the amygdala has demonstrated in a number of ways. Uh, 
it's the, you know, in the experiment by Dolkos and his co-workers, they described that brain scans using the fMRI as people were remembering relevant uh, stimuli, that the amygdala activity was higher for the emotional um, the emotional stimuli. <clears throat> so, tons of brain activity and tons of success with recalling uh, memorable uh, data points by uh, having emotional um, emotional parts compared to neutral. Alright, uh, uh, flashbulb memories. Um, a flashbulb memory is referred to a person's memory for the circumstances surrounding shocking, high-charged events. It is important to emphasize that the term flashbulb memory refers to memory for the circumstances surrounding how a person heard about an event, not memory for the event itself. Thus, a flashbulb memory for 9-11 would be a memory for a person that was doing... It would be what was going on during the terrorist attack. So, for example, I was a kid. So, my flashbulb memory would be when the terrorist attack happened on the uh, Twin Towers. Uh, I was at home. I just remember my parents calling me into the room. I was a kid. And I remember seeing, like, burning buildings. And it was, uh... It didn't make any sense to me. To see it. Alright, so, uh... The idea that memory can be affected by what happens after an event is the basis of Ulrich and Nieser, or sorry, Ulrich Nieser, and his co-workers in 1996. This would be considered the narrative rehearsal hypothesis, which states that we may remember events like those that happened in 9-11 not because of a special mechanism, but because we rehearse these events after they occur. The narrative rehearsal hypothesis makes sense when we consider the events that followed 9-11. Pictures of the plane crashing into the World Trade Center were replayed endlessly on TV, and the events and its aftermath were covered extensively for months afterwards in the media. Nieser argues that if rehearsal is the reason for our memories, um, the significant events, then the flashbulb analogy is uh, essentially misleading. Thanks, Nieser. Another aspect would be the constructive nature of memory. We have seen that we can remember certain things better than other things. Um, The characteristics of memory reflect the constructive nature of memories, uh, which is what people report as memories are constructed based on what actually happened, plus additional factors such as the person's knowledge, 
experience, and expectations. Source monitoring errors exist. Imagine that there's a movie you can't wait to see because you've heard it's really good. But when you try to remember uh, what first turned out on the movie, you are uncertain. What was it the review that you read online? That conversation you had with your friend? <clears throat> the billboard you passed on the road? Can you remember the initial source that you got interested in the movie? This is the problem of source uh, monitoring. The process of determining the origins of our memories. Um, monitoring error. This is misidentifying the source of a memory. So source monitoring error. Misidentification of the source of a memory. Uh, source misattribution. This is uh, uh, also a source uh, monitoring error because the memory is attributed to the work uh, to the wrong source. Um, source monitoring provides an example of the constructive nature of memory because when we remember something, we retrieve the memory. Some of the most sensational examples of source monitoring errors are cases of cryptoamnesia. And this is uh, the unconscious plagiarism of the work of others. Uh, for example, Beatle George Harrison was sued for appropriating the melody of the song He's So Fine, originally recorded in the 60s. For his, uh, for his song, <clears throat> My Sweet Lord. Although Harrison claimed he had used the tune unconsciously, he was successfully sued by the publisher of the original song. Harrison's problem was that he thought he was the source of the melody when he actually uh, sourced was someone else. So, that sucks. Alright. The illusionary truth effect. Um... Is the following sentence uh, true or false? Um, chemosynthesis is the name of the process by which plants make their food. If you said false, you are right. Photosynthesis is the actual process. But one way to increase the chances that you might incorrectly state that the, the uh, cosmosynthesis statement is true is to have you read it once and then again. The enhanced probability of evaluating statement as being true upon repeated pre present, uh, presentation is the illusionary truth effect. Why does repetition increase perceived truthfulness? Uh, an answer proposed by Fazio is that fluency, the case which has a statement can be remembered, influences people's judgments. How does real-world knowledge affect memory? Well, the effects of uh, creating familiarity on source monitoring illustrates how factors, in addition <clears throat> to what actually happened, can affect memory. Well, now, uh, I could describe some examples of how our, our uh, knowledge in the world can affect memory. A classic study uh, illustrates the knowledge of, of memory was conducted in the First World War and was published in 32 by Frederick 
Bear, uh, Barlett. Um, <clears throat> Barlett's Ghost of War experiment in the classic study, which was one of the first to suggest that uh, memory was constructive. Barlett and his participants read the following story from a Canadian Indian folklore. Uh, after his participants had read the story, Barlett asked them to recall it as accurately as possible. He then used the techniques of repeated reproduction in which the participants tried to remember the story at longer and longer intervals. After that, uh, after they had first read it, this is similar to the repeated recall technique used in the flashbulb memory experiment. One reason Barlett's experiment is considered important is because it is one of the first to use the repeated reproduction technique. These wording changes illustrate a process called pragmatic inference, which occurs when reading a sentence leads a person to expect something that is not explicitly stated. Our brain can fill in a lot of gaps. Um, an example of how schemas... So making inferences, uh, making inferences is memory reports that can be influenced by inferences that people make based on their experience and knowledge. Uh, we will consider this idea further, but, uh, so a script is our conception of the sequence of actions that usually occur during a particular experience. For example, your coffee shop script might be waiting in line, ordering a drink, and, um, the pastry from the Bartista. And receiving that pastry, paying and waiting nearby uh, for your drink. These scripts can influence our memory by setting up expectations that uh, usually happen in a particular situation. To test the influence of scripts, um, Gordon Bauer and his co-workers in 1979 did an experiment in which participants were asked to remember short passages. Now, there's false recall and recognition. Um, you know, what is it like to have exceptional memory? Um, well, this would be highly superior autobiographical memory. Um, these are people that are exceptional, you know. This is a skill probably uh, associated with, you know, FBI, CIA, uh, people that are, you know, some of the tests administrated is like, can you remember... Uh, uh, what happened in the video that we showed you and uh, it's just trying to pick up memory using your working memory or short-term memory <clears throat> well the mis uh, the misinformation effect um, we've seen memory systems prone to error uh, the misinformation effect is presented after a person witnesses an event they can change how a person describes that event later. This misleading information is referred to as a misleading post-event informational. Uh, this is an MPI. Uh, participants in the Loftel and Palmer 1974 experiment saw a film of a car crash, which uh, the scenes were similar to the picture 
that was shown to them. And um, then they were asked uh, questions upon seeing the car crash. Creating a childhood memory. Uh, There are a number of experiments that have demonstrated how suggestion can influence memory for childhood events. Imagine that a person in an experiment in which he or she is told about events that happened in, in his or her childhood. The experiment provides brief uh, descriptions of events that happened to the person long ago and asks the persons to elaborate in each event. It isn't surprising that the person recognizes the events because the descriptions were provided to the experimenter by the person's parents. The person is therefore able to describe what they remember about the event and sometimes also provide additional details. But suddenly the person is stumped because the experimenter has described an event that they don't remember. For example, there is a conversation that occurred in an experiment by Ira Heim Jr. and his co-workers in 95, in which a bogus event, one that had never happened, was uh, presented by the experimenter. There's legal uh, implications to false memory research. And in the 90s, a number of highly uh, publicized trials took place in which women who were being treated by therapists experienced a return of which they would call a repressed childhood memory. These are memories that have been pushed out of the person's consciousness. A big question for the legal implications is why do people make errors in eyewitness testimony? We'll continue our theme on how memory uh, research intersects with the criminal justice system. We now consider the issue of eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony by someone who has witnessed a crime. Eyewitness testimony is, in the eyes of juror members, an extreme importance and a source of evidence because it is provided by the people who were presented at the crime scene and who are assumed to be doing their best to accurately report what they saw. In the United States, 300 people per day become criminal defendants based on eyewitness testimony. Unfortunately, there are many instances in which errors of eyewitness testimony have occurred to the conviction of innocent people. Errors associated with perception and attention. In a study of weapon focus, the tendency to focus attention on a weapon that results in a narrowing of attention. So how does this work? Well, Claudia Stani and uh, Thomas Johnson in 2000 determined how well participants remember details of a filmed simulated crime. They found that participants were more likely to recall details of the perpetrator, the victim, and the weapon in the no-shoot condition. This is a gun that was present but not fired. Then in the shoot condition, the gun was fired. Apparently, the presence of a weapon that was fired distracted the attention from other details that were happening in the uh, video. In 
Interviewing techniques, uh, we have already seen what making suggestions to the witnesses. Well, good, you identified the suspect. Can cause errors to avoid this problem. Cognitive psychologists have developed an interview procedure called the cognitive interview, which involves letting the witness talk with a minimum of interruption and also using techniques that help Witnesses recreate the situation present at the crime by which having them place themselves back in the scene and recreate things like emotions and what they were feeling, uh, what they were looking at, and all these other details which will help. This does increase accuracy for memory. Eliciting false confessions. Um, We've seen that suggestion can influence the accuracy of what a witness reports as having happened in a crime scene. But let's take this a step further and ask whether suggestion can influence how someone who is suspected of committing a crime might respond to questioning about the crime. Uh, Robert Nash and Kimberly Wade in 2009 took videos of participants as which they played a computerized gambling game. Participants were told that on a trial in which they won their gamble, a green check would appear on the screen and they should take the money back from the bank. But when they lost, a red cross would appear and they should give money back to the bank. After participants had played the game, they were shown a doctoral video in which the green check was replaced with the Red Cross, to make them appear to be cheating by taking money when they were supposed to be giving it to the bank. When confronted with the video evidence, some participants expressed surprise, but all confessed to cheating. In another group who were told that, but in this video that they were cheating but didn't see the video, 73% of the participants confessed. That's so weird. Music and odor elicited autobiographical memories. Walking along, not thinking about anything in particular, uh, you enter a restaurant when, bam, out of the blue, a song playing in the background transports you back to a concert you attended over 10 years ago and also brings memories back that was happening in your life when the song was popular. But in addition to just eliciting an autobiographical memory, The song also elicits emotions. Sometimes the memories elicited by music create a feeling of nostalgia, where nostalgia is defined as a memory that involves a sentimental affection for the past. Memories elicited by hearing music are called music-enhanced autobiographical memories. Proust's description of how taste and olfaction unlocked memories he hasn't thought of for years is now called the Proust effect and is not an uncommon experience and it has been observed in the lab. Rachel Hurst and Jonathan Schooler, 2002, had participants describe a personal memory associated with items like Crayola crayons, copper tone suntan lotion, and Johnson baby powder. After describing their memories associated with the objects, they were presented with an object 
either in a visual form or an odor smell. And we're asked to think about the events that had been described and to rate it on a number of scales. The result was that participants who smelled the odor rated their memories as more emotional than participants who saw the picture. They also had a stronger feeling than the visual group of being brought back in the time that the memory occurred. All right, I'm going to sum everything back up for you. Here we go. A nationwide poll has shown that a substantial proportion of people have erroneous conceptions about the nature of memory. Autobiographical memory has been defined as memory for specific experiences from our life. It consists of both episodic and semantic components. The multidimensional nature of autobiographical memory has been studied by showing that people who have lost their visual memory due to brain damage experience a loss of autobiographical memory. Also supporting the multidimensional nature of autobiographical memory is Cabeza's experiments, which showed that a person's brain is more extensively activated when the viewing of photographs is taken by the person himself or herself when viewing the photograph taken by someone else, when in comparison to that. So when people are asked to remember events over their lifetime, transition points are particularly memorable. People over the age of 40 tend to have good memory for events they experience from an adolescent to early adulthood. This is called a remnant bump. The following hypotheses have been proposed to explain the remnant bump. 1. Self-image. 2. Cognitive. Uh, 3. And cultural life script. Emotions are often associated with events, but are easily remembered. The amygdala is a key structure for emotional memories and emotion and has been linked to improved memory consolidation. Brown and Collip proposed that the flashbulb memory to refer to a person's memory for the circumstances surrounding hearing about shocking uh, highly charged events. They propose that these light bulb memories are vivid and detailed like photographs. A number of experiments indicate that it is not accurate to equate flashbulb memories with photographs because as time passes, people make many errors when reporting flashbulb memories. Studies of memories for hearing about the Challenger explosion showed that people's responses became more inaccurate with increasing time with that event. Tolacria and Rubin's study of people's memory for when they first heard about the 9-11 terrorist attack indicates that memory errors increased with time, such as for other memories, but that the 9-11 memories were more vivid and people remained more confident of the accuracy of their 9-11 memory. The narrative rehearsal hypothesis proposes that enhanced memory for significant events may be caused by rehearsal. This rehearsal is often linked to TV coverage, as illustrated by the results of Princess Diana study. According to the constructive approach to memory, originally proposed by Barlett, based on his War of the Ghost experiment, 
what people report as memories are constructed based on what actually happened, plus additional factors such as the person's knowledge, experiences, and expectations. Source monitoring is the process of determining the origins of our memory, knowledge, or beliefs. A source monitoring error occurs when the source of a memory is misidentified. Crypto and uh, crypto amnesia, unconscious plagiarism, is an example of a source monitoring error. The uh, the results of uh, Jacob Lee's becoming famous overnight experiment showed how familiarity can lead a source of monitoring error. The illustratory effect, uh, illustratory truth effect occurs when the repetition increases the perceived truth of a statement. General world knowledge can cause memory errors. This is illustrated by Barlett's War of the Ghost Experiment, Pragmatic Inference, Schemas and Scripts, and False Recall and Recognition occur. Our knowledge about what is involved in a particular experience is a schema for that experience. The experiment is which participants were asked to remember what was in an office illustrated how schemas can cause errors in memory reports. A script is a type of schema that involves the conception of the sequence of actions that usually occur during a particular experiment. The dentist experiment in which a participant is asked to remember a paragraph about going to the dentist illustrates how scripts can result in a memory error. The experiment which people were asked to recall a list of words related to sleep illustrates how our knowledge about things that belong together, for example, that sleep belongs with bed, can result in reporting words that were not on the original list. Although people often think that it would be an advantage to have photographic memories, the cases of S and AJ shown that it may not be an advantage to be able to remember everything perfectly. The fact that our memory system does not store everything may even add to the survival value of the system. <clears throat> you want to remember things that can kill you. This adds uh, uh, evolutionary capability. Um, memory experiments in which misleading post-events information or MPI is presented to participants indicates that memory can be influenced by suggestion. An example of Lofeld's traffic incident experiment is source monitoring errors have been proposed to explain the errors caused by the misleading post-event information. Lindsay's experiment provides support for the source monitoring explanation. An experiment by Hyman in which she created false memories for a party showed that it is possible to create false memories for early events in a person's life. False memories have been involved in some cases of recovered memories of childhood abuse. There's a great deal of evidence that innocent people have been convicted of crimes because of the error of eyewitness testimony. Some of the reasons for errors in the eyewitness testimony is 1. Not paying attention to all relevant details because of the emotional situation during a crime. Weapons focused in one example, such as the attentional effect. 2. Errors due to familiarity which can result in misidentification of an innocent person due to a monitoring error. Three, errors due to suggestion during the questioning about a crime. 
and four, increased confidence due to post event feedback, the post identified, the post identification feedback error. Twenty. Uh, so, cognitive psychologists have suggested a number of ways to decrease errors in eyewitness testimony. These suggestions focus on improving procedures for conducting lineups and interview techniques. False confessions have been elicited from participants in laboratory experiments and in actual criminal cases. False confessions in criminal cases are often associated with strong suggestion combined with harsh interrogation procedures. Autobiographical memories <clears throat> can be elicited by odors and by music. These rapid, uh, often involuntary autobiographical memories are often more emotional and vivid than memories created by thoughtful retrieval process. Music has been used to help Alzheimer patients retrieve autobiographical memories. Alright. That's everything you need to know about memory. Think about it. Take it home.